Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national membership association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seeley, GIA's Programs Manager. Today, we kick off our Arts Advocacy Online Learning Series, and we're joined by Grantmakers in the Arts President and CEO, Eddie Torres, Americans for the Arts Vice President of Government Affairs and Arts Education, Narek Rome, and Penn Hill Group Principal, Alex Knock. They explore the question, what now? In discussion about the tax bill, arts advocacy efforts, and strategies for funders in the current national landscape. Welcome, Eddie. Welcome, Narek, And welcome, Alex. Thank you for joining us. Eddie, for all of our listeners, can you provide a bit more context to our question today and tell us what is happening at Capitol Hill that we should be concerned about? Thank you, Sherilyn. So at this moment, we're seeing the White House's proposed federal 2019 budget eliminating the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities, in addition to severely uh, cutting support for the Institute of Museum and Library Services and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We're also seeing risks to public services through the caps on state and local tax deductions. So now in light of this, we'd like to discuss advocacy, and lobbying and the difference between the two and relate this to what we can support as grant makers in the arts. So I basically want to throw the question out uh, to Narek and Alex. Alex, if you don't mind, we'll just go ahead and start with you. I just want your perspective on advocacy and lobbying. What are they and what are the difference between the two? And then I'd like Narek to add to that. Sure. Thank you, Eddie. So, I mean, the basic difference between advocacy and lobbying is really centered on the ask that you would make uh, in a lobbying sort of environment. So advocacy or generally educating, uh, you know, a governmental official, whether they be in Congress at the state level in the uh, executive branch here in Washington, D.C., you can advocate by going in and talking about a program, talking about what you do, the impact of it, what sort of resources it brings to the table. You know, policymakers have a right to know from you kind of what work you're doing, kind of how it impacts the community that you're working on, where advocacy can become lobbying, I guess, for, for lack of a better way to say it, is when you then follow up, here's my program, here's what we do, and could you do something, Mr. or Mrs. Elected Official, because of that? Could you give me money? Could you expand a law? Could you change a law? Could you do a new program or a new federal initiative or state initiative to actually do something about it? The lobbying hook there is the ask or what you must do. That's the main difference between the two. And, and Narek, I mean, you know, considering the work that Americans for the Arts does in these regards, could you talk about advocacy and lobbying and the relation? Sure. There's a, a huge spectrum. You could use the word advocacy as an umbrella. You could use lobbying as an umbrella term. But really, there's a lot of activities out there that foundations and nonprofits can take part in and lead. Things like educating the public about the value of the arts. There's obviously a lot of research activities, public opinion polling, media outreach. Holding public policy forums is not lobbying. Uh, Doing specific issue advocacy isn't lobbying. Having town hall meetings, workshops. Now, I wanted to maybe sharpen what Alex said even further because, I mean, I completely agree with the way that he described what direct lobbying is. And the actual definition for lobbying is three parts, as Alex was laying out. Influencing 
that an organization is attempting to influence specific legislation. So not just generally an issue about arts or arts funding, but an actual bill number that has at the core of it some type of action. That's number one. Number two, if that organization is stating its position for or against it, it can't just be talking about the legislation generally. It can't say this is something you ought to look into. You have to be saying we are against HR 10 or we are for it and we hope you'll be there. And then, as Alex said, if you're saying that the third item to a legislator or their staff, like you, you have a direct communication that is identifying the legislator or their staff. That's who you're talking to. You can, you can be talking to other audiences. I can be talking to the three of you. That is not lobbying, but talking to those elected officials is. So only when you have all three of those items lined up and active is that direct lobbying. And that is very rare. I am a lobbyist. I'm a registered lobbyist. And the amount of time I spend actual lobbying is quite rare because of a lot of the other advocacy things that we all try to do. That's great. That's hugely helpful. You know, to speak to this a little further, here at Grantmakers in the Arts, you know, we work directly with Penn Hill on both advocacy and lobbying. And uh, we actually have two contracts with them, one specifically for advocacy and one specifically for lobbying. Another point I want to make in relation to what you've just explained, which is you know, that quite a bit of what people fear is lobbying is in fact advocacy is this. Not only is advocacy not lobbying, but that advocacy is perfectly legal for any nonprofit organization and it's perfectly legal for a foundation to execute advocacy and it's perfectly legal for a foundation to support advocacy. I have that right, right? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Fantastic. And now the other thing is in terms of foundation support for lobbying, well, put it this way, in terms of organizations engaging in lobbying, it's perfectly legal for an organization to engage in lobbying as long as it doesn't pass a certain threshold. And there's a couple of different ways to address this thresholds. You know, one is what they call the instantial part test, which is basically about less than 5% of its overall activities. And then there's a couple of other ways which are more expenditure tests where you want to keep the, the amount of money you're spending below 25-20% depending on what you're doing. I have that right as well, right? That's right. And, and judge, you know, from the organizations that we work with, that's a significant portion of what they do. Rarely anybody comes close to that. We don't come close to that uh, in terms of, and we're an advocacy organization and we have three lobbyists registered here. So it's very hard to bump into that. And I was just going to also add on, on what you also said. I think one of the reasons why there's a lot of hesitation is because not everybody, perhaps the director or the government affairs person or the executive director of an organization doesn't know about the three-part lobbying definition and hasn't had a reason to think about it. But in these times where your board members might be feeling more sensitive or both for or against an issue, those kinds of things are part of, I think, the detente or the diplomacy of 
an organization and trying to figure out what posture or positioning it's going to take on a public policy right. issue. And Eddie, to your point and to Narek's point, anyone can do any of these activities. They just be making choices around, like Narek said, how they want to spend their time, how they want to spend their resources, what laws and disclosure aspects they want to comply with. Like Narek saying, they have three registered lobbyists there at AFTA. I'm a registered lobbyist here at Penn Hill Group because we lobby on behalf of you and, and other clients. Both of our organizations have made decisions to structure how we operate in certain ways, but any nonprofit can choose to engage in these sort of activities. They just have to you know, comply with the laws that are out there. It's not that it's not allowed. It's like you said, Eddie, with the different tests and also the how you might report on your 990 and things like that. It's just, it's a matter of reporting and transparency really in the end of the day. Right. And the impression that I get, um, you know, I'll go in a little bit more about this issue of foundations' ability to support both advocacy and lobbying. But, you know, I've had the good fortune to work with quite a number of attorneys, and I've worked for a public agency, etc. Generally speaking, an attorney is at your service for the sake of risk mitigation. And, you know, whenever there's sort of a gray area, there's a temptation on the part of anybody who is you know, looking to mitigate risk, to be fairly conservative. As an attorney once said to me, the least risky thing is the thing that never happens. And so, you know, my concern about this is that oftentimes this gets translated into particularly conservative or timid behavior on the part of those of us who actually support the arts and who have a passionate conviction that the arts deserve public support, um, but who are nonetheless risk averse in terms of our behavior. Uh, Have you had experiences related to this? This is Narek. I definitely have in terms of trying to make proposals in response to, let's say here, federal arts issues and the funding of the National Endowments for the Arts and Humanities uh, and some other issues. I mean, certainly on the education front as well that Alex has worked on, there's organizations that want to be a part of the effort to strengthen the arts or arts education. And they, for a number of reasons, feel, as you're saying, timid. They want to hold back. Perhaps they have either other funders or individuals that think the next step they might take is some type of full page ad blasting a member of Congress or the president or anyone in the administration. There is so much more to be done that doesn't involve anything like that. If I may give you an example, uh, some of the work we've done, we did last year with the uh, funding from the Mellon Foundation was about building a bank of stories and feedback from National Endowment for the Arts grantees who were giving a sense of what a federal grant from the NEA, how it impacted them locally, what it meant to their program, their organization, their audiences, their board, and also their efforts, uh, the local organization, this is the grantee, to leveraging that grant to attract additional non-federal dollars which is for us at, at Americans for the Arts, a critical way of trying to share the value of what an NEA direct grant does out there. And that is just an advocacy activity. It doesn't come close to direct lobbying. We'll do the direct lobbying. We just won't do it as part of that activity. Right, right. I mean, that's a, that's a really important point, you know, Eddie, that Narek just made. The specter of what is lobbying often can scare off folks because they read in the paper about a scandal or or something like that. In the end of the day, the issues that, that we're talking about here today, uh, whether it be arts education, the arts education in general, 
These are all what you would call white hat sort of issues. You know, these are issues that focus in on, you know, access of seniors to the arts, access of children, access to cultural things that enrich our society. These are not issues that make the enemies list for people in terms of lobbying sort of issues. In the end of the day, these are people who care about these issues. If you want to engage in these particular issues for folks that are listening to this, that no one's going to find fault with you. They may have other priorities they want to invest in, but these priorities are very unassailable. So, uh, you know, if someone is a little concerned about lobbying and concerned about what it means. And Eric, you made a great point, you know, about full page ads bashing member of Congress A or B. First of all, you know, you, you know, your organization would just like any sort of activity, not yours, but whoever would be lobbying, uh, would think through this and say, what, what's smart about doing this? And probably instantly taking out a full page ad in New York Times bashing, you know, member of Congress may not be the best use of your activities or your, your resources or things like that. Uh, but what it really comes down to is educating yourself, just like anything else. How you run your organization, learning the things, the, the tests that uh, Eddie talked about. There are great resources out there on the web about you know what you have to think about if you're actually going to engage in lobbying or reporting on your 990 and looking at the you know the time test and the resource test and whether or not you want to do things like making an H election and stuff like that. Lots of resources out there to begin to educate yourself as an organization on it. What you don't want to do is not uh, if you if you realize this is a way you can have impact, don't stick your head in the sand and go, I'm just not going to do it. It's too complicated. It's actually not that complicated. In the end of the day, it's mostly just about transparency. Mm-hmm. That's actually really perfectly put. You know, I mean, from what I've seen, what it basically comes down to is any party can engage in advocacy. Any foundation can financially support advocacy, advocacy that is explicitly self-identified as advocacy. Foundations can support lobbying. There's basically two ways, uh, and feel free to weigh in on this, but there's basically two ways to do it. You can support lobbying through supporting a project that includes a lobbying component. You just have to make sure that your funds aren't explicitly earmarked for the lobbying part of it. Um, And that doesn't mean it has to be exclusively pulled out. It just has to be not exclusive to the lobbying part of the project. And you can also provide general operating support, some part of which would support lobbying. Any responsible organization is going to make sure that they don't pass the threshold, whether it is the amount of work threshold or the amount of funding threshold beyond which lobbying is not permitted. But foundations do have ways that they can actually support lobbying themselves. I mean, Narek, this is a, a certain amount of the work that you do. I know uh, certainly this is a certain amount of the work that Penn Hill does. It is. And I wanted to uh, also emphasize that one of the ways grant makers in the arts, in the generic term, the members of the association, are obviously supporting through direct grants a lot of work in the arts and arts education. That is their primary funding activity. In part of their mission to support those endeavors at the local and and state levels, wouldn't it also be part of their mission? And I'm asking this to anyone listening is that those are all programs that you're supporting along the way in this rapidly changing public policy landscape where those kinds of programs are threatened in and around government each year in some way, doesn't it also make sense in your mission to also support the policy that wraps around those programs. That's what we're talking about here. If your mission at your foundation is to support 
a certain kind of program. It's got to include a policy piece as well, or else you're just doing a year-by-year kind of support where the long-term sustainability of that program might be threatened after you have left or after the grant has ended. Those are the kinds of things that have long-term impacts, policy side. And so it's not that everyone needs to have a lobbying agenda, but everyone should have some kind of advocacy agenda that can include lobbying at the right time in the right way. And just to absolutely agree with that and to further amplify uh, Narek's comments, Eddie, to Narek's point, uh, let's say you are a grant maker in a particular area of the country, a state or a regional area, and you're giving out several grants to support uh, after-school programs that include an arts component. And maybe throughout those grants, you uh, reach maybe a thousand kids, right? Uh, that's great. You're providing a great benefit to those thousand kids, the, the communities that are involved there. Uh, hopefully they're leveraging state resources, federal resources, whatever they might be. But imagine if you barked upon what Narek's saying, this policy component to say, hey, we know the results we're having here. Let's educate people about the results we're having here, about the impact of the arts in these in these programs. And let's think about how we get our state policymakers, our federal policymakers, to infuse this, to fund this. You know, again, that's going to the lobbying side, but just educating them on the power of something. That way, Maybe it's not those thousand kids you have an impact on, but it's 10,000, it's 20,000, it's 100,000, it's a million, you know, who knows where the conversation goes because you've extended it out into a different realm. It's not just your giving. Your giving's providing a great resource and a great way to reach folks, but your giving can be used as leverage, as a, as a proof point to actually expand the policy and go the further for the direction like Narek was talking about. I mean, we're very lucky here at Grantmakers in the Arts that our uh, my predecessor, our president and CEO prior to my joining was um, herself a registered lobbyist and, and so had a fairly sophisticated understanding of these things. Um, and it's actually through our members that we're able to support Penn Hills, both their advocacy, which um, we've received direct support for and lobbying, which we're able to support through the general operating grants that we've received, et cetera. I wanted to ask both of you, as regards the issue of effective advocacy and effective lobbying, what are the components? I mean, basically when you've either engaged in, experienced, witnessed what looked to you like effective advocacy and effective lobbying, what were the components that you were able to identify and that you would encourage others that are engaging in advocacy and lobbying to include? Well, I'll start uh, on a state level and Alex could maybe take the federal side, but we just completed a three-year state project, state policy pilot program. And there's a number of outcomes, but the one that I think is most applicable to this discussion is the sense of the convening power and the necessity for coordination and identifying what, what your policy portfolio is. And so at the state level, a number of the states we work with had a collection of policy ideas. And that's all it was, a collection. That's not effective enough. That, that's not sharpened enough. It's not honed. It's not coordinated. It needs to have those elements in order to become an effective and thoughtful advocacy agenda, which then can inform a lobbying pursuit. But it was really important for a number of those states to move forward on coordinating what kind of, in this case, education ideas uh, they were working on and what they had in common and how they could pursue a statewide agenda. This is something that uh, I've been a part of. The Hewlett Foundation has had an, advocate, an arts education advocacy cohort for 
about a decade now. Uh, and it's been fascinating to see in California, where the cohort uh, mainly lies, how they've uh, professionalized and become more uh, sophisticated in a statewide level in informing each other on their projects, identifying the policy landscape in California from a year, two years out, and organizing that way, and identifying what their policy pursuits could be as a group. That is the kind of support that I think pays off the way that Alex was just saying, to have long-term impact uh, along the mission of what each foundation uh, is pursuing. So just to buttress a little bit more about what Narek was saying, the lobbying or advocacy work is, is just like a lot of other things in life. You need a really clear goal. You need a clear set of points to articulate your message. One, what is your clear goal around what you're trying to accomplish? Two, uh, what are your evidence points that support your goal? And then three, if you're transitioning into the lobbying side, what is your clear ask? What do you want out of a particular situation or what do you want your policy outcome to be? You know, Narek mentioned the, the California uh, Hewlett-supported effort. I think that's a great example where the objectives are clear, the evidence points are clear, the results that they want are clear, and in the end of the day, it's had a lot of impact out there. For instance, back to my after-school example, if you thought that was a policy you wanted to pursue, one, uh, we want after-school, we want arts infused in after-school programs. Two, here's the reasons why that policy approach adds benefit. Uh, it impacts the kids, it impacts the community, it impacts larger things about how they go to school, whatever evidence points you have. And then three, if you're making a lobbying effort here, here's Mr. Mr. or Mrs. Legislature, this is what I want you to do. I want you to increase funding. I want you to create a new program. I want you to direct this money this way uh, to have this impact. But again, it's just like anything in life. If you don't kind of you know, set apart this, uh, set set upon this in a purposeful, clear, kind of planned out way, you're probably not going to get the results that you want. Fantastic. So this has been hugely helpful. I just want to also create a, a, a moment in case there are any points that we just haven't gotten to during the this conversation, um, in case anybody wants to make any further points. So one other thing I wanted to quickly mention was that while we've been certainly focused on the arts and arts education, they're sitting here in Washington, D.C., there is no shortage of uh, public policy pursuits on every kind of issue topic out there. And one of the primary challenges we have, the three of us have, and, and our membership and those who we work for have, is trying to keep uh, policy around the arts and arts education somewhere uh, on the radar screen at the right time on Capitol Hill and certainly in state capitals and so on. And I just want to say that one reason for foundations and arts groups to be forward thinking about this, as Alex was saying, strategic, is that there is a lot of competition out there for the time and attention of elected officials. And whether you consider that lobbying or just decision maker education, it is critical that we still be visible, that we still be vocal and raising the public policy issues that apply to the arts, arts education and everything in between in, in our uh, policy spectrum. Amen, Derek. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm, I'm coming to grant makers from the arts having been in, in public service, having worked as part of a mayor's administration. And one of the things that really impressed itself upon me was the extent to which people who are consistently engaged 
get listened to, they get taken seriously in a way that people don't when their engagement is uh, periodic, sporadic, interrupted, and when they frame their issue as niche, you know, when they isolate their issue from other issues. Those who are able to engage consistently over the long term and relate their issues to whatever happens to be on the agenda in a way that's, you know, convincing and, and authentic and uh, backed up by evidence. Um, are the ones who wind up having influence. And it's hugely important when we think about these things that we think about them as long-term strategies with an eye towards consistency. I think you're exactly right. So Sherilyn, you wanna wrap us up? Sure. Thank you to Eddie, Narek, and Alex for sharing your time, perspective, and expertise. And thanks to all who joined us. To find out more about what you can do to support arts advocacy efforts, continue to follow our arts advocacy online learning series and follow Grantmakers in the Arts on Facebook and Twitter at GI Arts. Thanks so much for listening.